Hi everyone, me again, Laszlo Montgomery, coming your way as I do each time from the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com. With the recent test on April 19th of the Agni-5 ICBM, the whole China-India relationship sort of reached a new stage. What stage exactly, I don't know, but despite the whole calm and measured response from Beijing, I thought it might be a good idea to look at the history of Sino-Indian relations. These two superpowers and supercultures go way back. So let's take a look and maybe gain some sort of perspective about China and Indian relations today. China and India are two of the most amazing civilizations on Earth. Like Egypt and Mesopotamia, they are places that grew up along great rivers. The art, science, religion, philosophy, technology that came out of ancient China and India puts them in a very small and elite club of great civilizations. And they're right next to each other. Over two billion people living side by side. Well, the autonomous region of Tibet, the millennia-old historical natural buffer between the two uber-civilizations, that's a subject that uh, plays a role in today's tensions and relations. And more than Tibet, the natural landscape itself acted as a huge impassable curtain that sort of kept everyone in their part of Asia and didn't allow for easy migration back and forth. If you wanted to go to China way back in the day, you really had to want to go there because it was a long and treacherous journey. Which civilization is older, India or China? That's always a fun, nationalistic game to play. They both win, actually. Pre-Harappan culture that saw the earliest settlements along the Indus River happened around 2950 BC, 4,962 years ago. Let's call it 5,000 years ago. What was going on in China then? Well, all the many Neolithic cultures had already happened in China. Pengtoshan, Peiligang, Cishan, Hemudu, Yangshao, Longshan... You can't really say which one, China or India, developed first. So these two ancient civilizations grew for thousands of years with the Himalayas keeping them apart. They never went to war with each other until the 20th century, and that wasn't much of a war. China's prehistory times of Fuxi, the Yellow Emperor, Yao, and Shun, this was the time of Harappan culture. Indian civilization by then was already spreading into Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iran. The cities of Harappa and Mohenjo-Daro at this time are in full bloom. Writing is very developed, but not yet in China. And then 2350 to 2250 BC, or thereabouts, we have the biblical flood of Noah's Ark fame. And in China, when you, the great, tames the floods and ushers in the, up to the present time, semi-mythical Xia dynasty, Indus civilization is firing on all cylinders. Bronze comes to India first. 2000 BC, there was no greater civilization on earth that could surpass India in technology and science. That was the place. This was when Harappan culture reached its peak. And archaeologists have dug up plenty of artifacts from this age in India that shows a great sophistication. Now, this is all during the Xia dynasty. The earth has not yet revealed the secrets as to what exactly was going on during the Xia period. Recorded Chinese history only begins around 1700 BC or thereabouts. 
and right when the Aryans start invading India, that's when we have the Shang Dynasty. The Shang Dynasty, again, for those who didn't take notes uh, for episode 15, China's most famous historian, Sima Qian, wrote about the Shang, but no one knew whether to believe him or not until 1928 when archaeologists learned this dynasty and its kings existed just like Sima Qian said they did in his Shiji. And this is the period of Bronze Age China. The Shang and the Zhou dynasties coincided with India's Vedic period when Hinduism came into the world. At this time, nobody in India knew that China existed and vice versa. These civilizations continued to develop totally independent of each other. The Vedic Age lasted for about a thousand years, beginning in 1500 BC. And once again, India beats China to the punch as far as who begins to use iron first. By 600 BC, both China and India are both founts of culture and learning. This was the time of Lao Tzu and Confucius, as well as the great sage's disciples. It was also the time of Ashoka the Great and the Maurya dynasty in India. So not long after Confucius leaves his mark in China, Siddhartha Gautama is born in India. And then before you know it, Cyrus the Great invades and the whole Indus River Valley in northern India is under Persian control. So when do these two great peoples, their civilizations developing side by side, yielding cultural riches that boggle the mind even today, when do they finally find out about each other? Well, the official date is 217 BC, during the reign of he who gave us the word China, the emperor Qin Shi Huang, and an Indian Buddhist scholar visited the capital then. That was uh, the first time there was contact, or at least official contact. But Chinese-Indian relations really start to happen during the Han Dynasty. This is thanks mostly to the good old Silk Road and Zhang Qian. That's where Sino-Indian relations have their humble beginnings. Now, our hero, Zhang Qian, who we have featured in more than one podcast episode, he got as far as northern India, but he mostly went to a lot of places where Indians also went. And it was on his epic journey all over Central Asia where he learned of this place called India that existed, and he also knew there were existing markets for Chinese silks and other products there. Back then, they referred to the land as Shandu, so it's right around the 2nd and 1st century BC only that China and India start to get to know each other. Zhang Qian wrote of India, quote, Southeast of Dasha is the kingdom of Shandu. Shandu, they told me, lies several thousand li southeast of Dasha. The people cultivate the land and live much like the people of Dasha. The region is said to be hot and damp. The inhabitants ride elephants when they go into battle. The kingdom is situated on a great river. The kingdom of Dasha we looked at in a previous episode, that was the region known as Bactria. Bactria was part of the Persian world way back in the day, but today is geographically part of Afghanistan. They were known as great traders and men of commerce rather than as conquerors. They were the ancestors of the Tajiks and the Pashtuns. And how did they get to know each other, India and China? Through trade and Buddhism. They love Chinese silks in India, just like they did in Rome. 
In around 100 AD, when Buddhism began to spread outside of northern India and into Central Asia, Tibet, and of course China, it brought China and Indian cultures into direct contact. And one of the funny things was Buddhism around 200 AD or thereabouts was already starting to peter out in India. The land that spawned Buddhism later on had moved on to other religions, most notably Hinduism, Jainism, and then later Islam. But as we all know, Buddhism was wholeheartedly and enthusiastically embraced by the people of Central Asia and, of course, China, Korea, and Japan. And as you can surely recall from the Silk Road episode number 76, where we covered Xuanzang and mentioned Faxian, Chinese began coming to India in droves to study the Buddhist scriptures and make pilgrimages to the sacred and holy places mentioned in these books. So it all started out nice. There was trade, there was Buddhism, there was appreciation of each other's culture, and an exchange of learning took place often when great minds might have that chance encounter and one man's common knowledge was another man's holy grail. So Buddhism and the Silk Road, they sort of defined the Sino-Indian relationship in the first centuries A.D. One of India's golden ages, the Gupta Empire that ran 320 to 550, coincided with an equally rich time in China, the Western Jin and the Northern and Southern Dynasties period. China was already one of the most advanced civilizations on the planet. Important stuff like Knowing a year was 365 and a quarter days, mastering the, the secret of silk making, the manufacture of sophisticated glazed pottery, paper making, and the whole Confucian system of government that used civil service exams. The Silk Road, improved roads and canals, major civil engineering works. China wasn't always a powerhouse of ingenuity, but India during the time of the Gupta Empire. They were no slouches. Their mathematics and number system was even more advanced than in China. They already knew about the concept of negative numbers, the square root of two, the table of signs. Pi was already calculated. In astronomy, Indian observers had already identified seven planets and knew the planets and the moon reflected the sun's light. Indian scientists already understood the Earth's rotation on its axis, and they correctly predicted eclipses and had their own theory of gravity. The diameter of Earth had already been calculated. In medicine and physiology, Indian physicians during the Gupta understood the importance of the spinal cord and knew how to set bones and knew the importance of the sterilization of wounds. So side by side, these giants grew, separated by the roof of the world, this impassable landscape, but India had something that China wanted, and that, of course, was Buddhism. During this Gupta age, under the emperor Chandragupta II, Fashian made his journey to India to retrieve any and all sacred texts of Buddhism. He left China in 399 and reached India in 405 AD. What was left of the Roman Empire still had 71 years to go yet. He stayed in India up to 411 AD, and then Fashian went on a pilgrimage to all the other great cities of India, Mathura, Kanawi, Kaplavastu, Kushinagar, Vaishali, Pataliputra, Kashi, and Rajgir. And Fashian brought back amazing tales about India to China. 
Well, Buddhism served as the enzyme that accelerated relations between India and China. Most of these visitors who trekked from China to India and vice versa would come for the Buddhism, but there would also be other cultural and scientific delights to bring back home or combine with what they already knew. So anyways, during these days, the Han, all the way up through the Tang, Sino-Indian relations were mostly fueled by China's insatiable thirst for all things Buddhist. The Muslim Admiral Zheng He, he of the Seven Voyages during the early part of the Ming Dynasty between 1405 and 1433, he visited India and Sri Lanka on almost every voyage. Because of India's geographic location, they had a much different dynamic than what China faced. India faced all kinds of invasions and periods of subjugation by rulers from afar. Islam came to both places around the same time. Once the Mughal Empire began in India, the focus of trade and relations shifted away from China and towards the Middle East. And this is especially in the 16th century. I hate to be a spoiled sport, but let's jump ahead to the Qing Dynasty because that's when India and China's worlds sort of collide. First, there was the Sino-Sikh War in 1841. The Sikh Confederation invaded Tibet, China didn't like this, so they went in and kicked them out and in turn invaded the Sikh lands, and then they were then booted out. And that was that, not much to write home about. But if you recognize the year, 1841, you'll know this is when the first opium war was going on, and it was with opium that China's interests and India's interests conflicted. 1793, Britain got the monopoly for opium production in Bengal, where... They had all the best stuff. And once that opium production got into high gear, it started flooding into China all throughout the 19th century, especially the periods of the Daoguang and Xianfeng emperors. So India was going through its own pressures with the British, but the opium that was harvested in the fields of Bengal was completely wrecking the Chinese economy and causing all kinds of social problems. I know you can't blame India, but this was definitely a harbinger of things to come in the 20th and 21st century, where India would often be the lower-cost alternative to China for many commodities and finished goods. Things changed a lot for India and China in the 20th century. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to risk getting this show banned for saying this, maybe, but I guess there's no beating around this bush. The whole of the 20th century... Sino-Indian relationship has been driven a lot by the issue of Tibet. After Indian independence in 1947, the matter of Tibet wasn't made clear. In the heat of the civil war raging in China between the nationalists and the communists, Tibet sort of took advantage of the situation to assert their independence. And the prime minister of India felt There was a future for India in Tibetan affairs. Certain promises and utterances were said by the departing British Raj that left Indian politicians believing they'd remain influential in Tibetan affairs. They never thought China was going to do what they did. In 1913-1914, Tibet, Britain, and India signed the Simla Accord, which drew up the McMahon Line. China was initially part of the talks, but later 
walked out over some disagreement. But this accord sort of became the accepted delineation of where India ended and China began. Or did it? Now, once the communists prevailed and the PRC was established, one of the first things Chairman Mao wanted to do was get Tibet firmly on the Chinese side and regain full control over the place. So right away, this is a problem between China and India, as both sides had interests there. Tibet had always been the perfect buffer zone between China and India. If Tibet became part of China, that means India would share a common border with China, and they preferred keeping the status quo with Tibet, you know, keeping the two giants apart, at least geographically. In December 1949, three months after the founding of the PRC, India recognized the new government in China. And in April 1950, the two countries established diplomatic relations. So India, rather early on, was very supportive of the new communist regime in power. And they were the first non-socialist country to recognize the PRC. In May of 1951, India and China came to an agreement on Tibet, and that quieted things down for a little while. In April 1954, India and China signed the Five Principles for Peaceful Coexistence. This called for mutual respect for each other's territorial integrity and sovereignty, mutual non-aggression, agreement not to interfere in each other's internal affairs, equality and mutual benefit, and peaceful coexistence. The whole thing was meant to last for eight years. It was an eight-year agreement. And as soon as it ended, China and India were at each other's throats, and this ultimately resulted in the 1962 Sino-Indian War. But the 1950s overall was a good period for China and India. And lest we forget, India's kindness to the still newly established People's Republic of China at the 1955 Bandung Conference, insisting that China be allowed to participate and offering support for China at this momentous meeting. When Zhou Enlai visited India in 1956, people lined the streets, chanting the slogan of the day, Hindi Chini Bai Bai, India and China are brothers. That was the tone of the relationship for most of the 50s. But then you had the 1959 Tibetan uprising, the flight of the Dalai Lama to India with the help of the CIA, of course, where he was quickly granted asylum and allowed to set up a government in exile. This did not help Sino-Indian relations and remains a sore spot to this day. That really put a damper on the relationship, to put it mildly. In November of 1959, Zhou Enlai negotiated the line of actual control with India to define the borders between them. This 1962 war was triggered by a border dispute. There's two disputed regions that cause all the headaches. First is the so-called McMahon line that makes up the eastern portion of the line of actual control. This 25,000 square mile sliver of area borders India and China and serving as a bridge between Bhutan and northwest Burma. India says the land is theirs. China says it's part of Tibet. In the west, you have a sparsely habited area known as Aksai Chin. This was part of Jammu and Kashmir, one of the other 
famous powder kegs in the world. Aksai Chin covers 16,481 square miles. If you look at it on a map, it's a little territory that lies right on the westernmost part of the Tibet-Xinjiang border with India. Beside Aksai Chin, you have the territory of Arunachal Pradesh. This region was invaded and seized by China during this 1962 war. October-November 1962, they went in, took it, declared victory, and then went back to their side of the McMahon line. To spare you the details of this war fought way high up in the Himalayas in the freezing cold, it was a disaster for India. Nehru was totally unprepared and went at the Chinese army, and China just ate India's lunch. And this put the brakes on any hope of improving relations in the short term. Both sides had done their part to try and intimidate the other with all kinds of actions, and finally, China's leaders said they were going to teach India a lesson. And this 1962 war, as brief as it was, allowed China to do just that. And then diplomatic relations were downgraded, and for 14 years, all trade was suspended. Nehru's dream of friendship and solidarity in this part of the world went down the tubes, and the hard work done in the 1950s to bring China and India closer together all came to naught. After India's humiliating defeat in 1962, things took a major turn for the worse, and the next 40 years have been all about trying to come back from that brink. To this day, the area of Arunachal Pradesh is called South Tibet in China. There was another flare-up in this region in 1987, but it didn't amount to anything. And pretty much since 1959, India and China have had this uneasy peace regarding these disputed territories. So after this Sino-Indian War, things between China and India went down the tubes. In 1965, when Pakistan and India went to war, China, of course, backed their longtime ally, Pakistan. And they did the same thing in December 1971 when it happened again. And this brings up another thing, Pakistan. Pakistan is an old friend of China. Pakistan is also India's primary uh, enemy, I guess you could call them. India has cozied up to the West and later with Russia. And China got close with Pakistan. The 60s and 70s were dark days for Sino-Indian relations. Don't forget, it was Pakistan who American authorities during the Nixon administration used as the most convenient channel to get to China. Pakistan and China were always tight, and it was with Pakistan's help that Nixon was able to open that door and kickstart U.S.-China relations. But 1978, things began to look up on the diplomatic front, and in 1979... Relations were restored, and once again, they started to look at ways to patch things up between the two budding superpowers. And into the 80s, there were plenty of negotiations going on to resolve these border disputes. But as I said, despite the negotiations, things often got tense. And in 1987, it was almost a repeat to what happened in 1962. In the late 80s, there was an effort to patch things up again. December 1988, Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi visited China, the first PM to do so since Nehru's visit in 1954. That was a turning point in the relationship. 
But Tibet remained the sticking point, especially the well-known fact that Tibetan separatists were finding safe haven across the border in India. Despite all that, the 1990s saw a period of diplomatic thaw and more cooperation militarily, economically, and in science and education. But May 1998, when India blew off their first atom bomb, things sort of hit the skids. Their defense minister, George Fernandes, then famously declared back then that China was India's greatest threat. So once India joined the nuclear club, China understandably got a little on edge. But the positive outweighed the negative, and the relationship survived the atomic blast. At the turn of the century, China and India again tried to patch things up a little more. There were some advances made on the border front. Bilateral trade began to hit its stride, but the sticking points just won't go away. The disputed border areas in Arunachal Pradesh and Aksai Chin, Indian support for the Dalai Lama, and allowing a safe haven for Tibetan dissidents, and now India's suddenly upgraded nuclear missile capability. In trade and commerce, India and China are indispensable to each other, though India has a trade deficit with China. As far as the opening up and reform of the economy, China began earlier in 1979 and India later in 1991. As we all know, for both countries... Many of these economic reforms have been successful beyond anything anyone imagined. Although I have to say, India is really giving China a run for their money on the traditional low-cost daily-use items, like in my business. In many cases, for exports to the USA at least, India often undercuts China's pricing and presents very strong competition to China factories and exporters. They maintain military cooperation. Let's face it, other than the 1962 war and the occasional saber-rattling over the disputed territories, the Indian people don't stress out too much over China. They have bigger fish to fry with Laskari-Taiba, Pakistan, the Naxalites, and India's own, you know, unique societal problems. Both governments of India and China face their own brands of nationalists that they occasionally have to pander to regarding various hot-button issues of Sino-Indian relations, and India's famous sensationalist press likes to stir up the pot and raise the temperature a little when it comes to reporting on China. In June 2003, China and India got more serious when Prime Minister A.B. Vajpayee visited the Middle Kingdom. Both sides announced their Declaration on Principles for Relations and Comprehensive Cooperation. This agreement swept the mutual suspicion under the rug and lowered the flame a little on the border dispute issue. This deal was all about making the most of the potential for trade and economic cooperation. In 2005, the two giants held their first strategic dialogue in New Delhi. And all this while, they have kept the momentum going and have grown closer. So close, in fact, that Western nations are feeling the pressure. And when the financial crisis hit in 2008 and the West was brought to its knees, the China-India relationship became even more important and significant. Most of the countries in the world would be considered to be developing countries. And China and India's models have become the role models for these developing nations more than the West. Today, 
India and China are friendly rivals playing the same old geopolitical games that all great regional and global powers play. There's a lot of negatives to keep the pot of mutual distrust simmering. You've got the border and territorial disputes, competition for natural resources, especially for energy to power their two super economies. There remains a military rivalry, and both countries are often at odds with each other as far as competing for Asian regional influence as well as in Africa. And the whole matter of China's closeness to Pakistan and India's relationship with the U.S. also makes sure that flame underneath the pot keeps burning. But the mammoth in the room remains Tibet. As long as the Tibetan government in exile remains in Dharamsala, so close to the hotly contested area of Arunachal Pradesh, keeping the peace is not going to be easy. As you might have guessed, the matter of Tibet is pretty sacred to people in China. And nobody liked it there back in 2008 when the Olympic torch was going around the world and the moment was tarnished with all these protests against Chinese rule in Tibet. And there's always this nagging suspicion that India and the USA, two good friends, will team up as agents provocateur to support Tibetan resistance and cause, you know, civil unrest and instability in Tibet. And the recent self-immolations are, you know, maybe a good example of that. Anyways, as the leaders and politicians of China and India make nice and sign all kinds of trade agreements and carry out educational and cultural exchanges, there's always these ghosts from history that still linger and continue to demand attention today. This includes Tibet first and foremost in the disputed areas of Aksai Chin and Arunachal Pradesh. China and India also carry out a very robust competition to carve out their place in the region and advance their influence, particularly in South Asia. And then there's always the subject of Pakistan and the whole dynamic there. But the ghost of the 1962 Sino-Indian War still likes to hover around these two neighbors and rattle its chains whenever the occasion arises. So that's about it, everyone. I thought I would feature this topic in light of the recent press about the missile test. As the great Professor Bob always says, I hope you enjoyed that. I'm off to Ningbo next week, going to Ningbo and to Guangzhou. Going to be gone for about a week, so the next episode is going to be touch and go. If you don't see anything in a week to ten days, girl, you know the reason why. So this is Laszlo Montgomery once again signing off from the City of Trees and PhDs, Claremont, California. Summer's back and not a moment too soon. We'll see you next time, I hope, for another, if I may be so bold, exciting episode of the China History Podcast.